Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of The Hedgehog and the Fox. This week... With cinemas in many parts of the world still closed, we go to the movies, and philosopher Gillian Virginie is buying the popcorn and choosing the film. In some ways, I'm quite a predictable kind of film-goer for someone of my kind of background and education. I tend to see perhaps more things with subtitles than not and aren't a frequent visitor to the multiplex. In terms of what actually catches my attention, if I think about my favourite films, they're, they're all quite diverse, really. I mean, there are some classic old comedies. I, I really like Airplane and Life of Brian. They're also, but there's also some Iranian films I like. But Babette's Feast is really, I think, a, a one-off. You know, the director really didn't have any other great films that were widely acclaimed. And it's not really like any other film I know. It's a it's a lovely story, and it is a real story with great characters, quite simply told, superficially at least. But I think it's just very captivating, very distinctive. Doesn't really relate to my other films that I most love. Babette's Feast, released in 1987, was the first Danish submission to win the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. And it's the subject of Julian's recent book, in the BFI Film Classics series. A short, engaging essay on the film that won't take you much longer to read than the film's running time. Babette's Feast is based on a short story by Karen Blixen, better known as the author of Out of Africa. It's set in the 19th century in an austere part of northern Denmark, in an equally austere Christian community, into which comes Babette. Once a celebrated Parisian chef, now fleeing the counter-revolutionary violence that suppressed the Paris Commune in 1871. What could have been merely a pointed satire on the rigidity of a certain kind of religious life, or a gentle culture-clash comedy, is, Julian suggests, something much deeper and much more thought-provoking. An example of film as philosophy. We'll come back to that. But we started with the film's director, Gabriel Axel. In his prior career, he made a string of comedies, many of them sex comedies, that don't hint he had an Oscar winner in him. And after Babette's success, all his films were flops. So Babette was unique in his creative life, a project he'd pursued for 15 years before it reached the screen. 
Yeah, I think it tells you something, doesn't it? This was like a real passion, personal passion for him to to do this project. And I think sometimes, you know, that's when people really do their best work. It's something they absolutely believe in or absolutely captivated by it. I think that's always a challenge for anyone who's trying to sort of eke out a living in anything remotely creative. Uh, you're always like seduced sometimes by necessity to do the things which are just going to work and are going to pay and to hold on to the vision of the things that just most matter to you. It can be very, very difficult, but the result is often you know, your best work. So was it a self-evident choice for you, Babette's Feast, if you were, if there was going to be a, a, a Bajini book on a film, was, was that always going to be the one that you would want to do? I think I think so. I think for a book, yes. I've I've done various talks and written sort of essays on other films. But I think that this one, it really kind of was an intersection of interests of mine. Uh, cinema, philosophy, food and religion. And it really brings those things together. And I, I genuinely think it's the most interesting and revealing meditation on those subjects that you could hope to find. And so I, I do think that to write something longer and to really sort of try and go under the skin of it, I can't think of another film where I would like leap at the opportunity of doing. I mean, this was really a labour of love. I mean, I approached the BFI to do it and it's actually extremely difficult to do so um, for reasons that I shouldn't go into too much detail for because they might involve some confidentiality perhaps. It was actually very hard work to even sort of track down the then series editor and get them responding to me. And and the, the, the payment would be nominal. Uh, I'd be on well below minimal wage for writing it. But I just, I just really wanted to do this. Um, I wanted to get it out of me and down on paper. And so I'm really pleased to have, to have done so. So do you remember your first viewing of this film? Was it was it in 1987 or, or thereabouts when it came out? And can you remember what impression it first made? My memories are hazy. I think it must have been around the time when it first came out, probably a little later. Let's think about this, actually. No, it was probably, it probably did come out in like my first year at university. But I really don't know whether that's when I, I first saw it. And I think the impression it's made on me has just grown over the years. I mean, sometimes, I don't know if it's the same with you, but sometimes things which end up becoming your favourite works of art in any format don't always make an immediate strong impression. Sometimes the first time you see them, they engage you enough that you recognise it's worth seeing again or viewing again. And it's those, those latter encounters which really sort of draw you in. And I think also what, what happened here was that I was invited to give a talk and I had been thinking a bit about this book because I'd written a book about the philosophy of food and I wanted to go a bit further into it. And again, the process of doing an extended talk really kind of brought home to me the richness of the material and how much more there was to be said. So it wasn't, it wasn't that you sort of immediately fell in love with it the first time that you saw it you kind of went back to it because of the subject matter and then you found greater depths in it. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I, I really liked it the first time I saw it, but I think, you know, I, I fell in love with it uh, on, on latter occasions. <laughs> you raised this concept quite early on in the book of film as philosophy, 
Now, that's that's probably going to come as a bit of a surprise to, to most listeners and readers. So what, what do you actually mean by film as philosophy? Yeah, well, I can't borrow that idea from Stephen Mulhall, who really introduced it in his book on the Alien film series. I think what's interesting is that film is often used to illustrate philosophy or to, to dramatise it. You know, you have scenarios which are kind of like thought experiments so you know what if you could live your life in two different ways what what difference would that make what would happen if you could commit crimes completely unseen or you have kind of like dialogues where essentially the characters are having philosophical discussions but what interests me is the idea that film like other art forms can actually do philosophy now this is counterintuitive if you adopt the mainstream position in western analytic philosophy which is that philosophy is all about argument that's the 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 raw material of philosophy presenting arguments and of course argument is a big part of it but i think we underestimate the extent to which philosophy even in that tradition is actually a large part about attending very carefully to something and pointing our attention, directing other people's attention to what is most important and salient in it. Particularly in ethics, for example, I think art can do that really well. It can't give you a general theory, but then I think general theories are overrated in ethics. But it can really draw your attention to some important phenomena in morality so for example the films of the Cohen brothers really fascinate me I think one reason for that is that they show very very clearly I think how important it is in morality not whether you have the right theory or not but simply whether you're able to sort of resist temptations small temptations which lead you down a road potentially to ruin philosophers don't talk about that kind of thing because it's not easy to theorize but that's precisely the reason why films can talk about those kind of things, because films are not about theorising. They're about showing and directing our attention to important features of, of the world, human nature, experience. For people who perhaps haven't watched the film or haven't watched it in a long time, can you introduce us to the world of the film, maybe by talking about how we, how the, those opening shots, what kind of world we are introduced to, because we're going to be in a very particular, really very enclosed world within which those ethical dilemmas, dramas, choices are going to be played out. So can, can you sort of bring us into that world? Yeah, well, the world is essentially, it's an isolated village uh, in, in Denmark, the, the community is dominated by a, a rather puritanical Protestant form of Christianity. And obviously this is the kind of place where people eke out a living in rather harsh conditions. But I think it's this idea of the, the puritanical Christianity is really at the heart of it. The, the fundamental message of the pastor who is, well, deceased uh, by the time of the, the film's main action happens, but who is still the guiding figure is on the face of it, it's a gospel of love and compassion and caring. But it really seems to lack genuine heart. People parrot these things. There's a kind of a coldness to them. And it's into that world that that comes this French chef who has more of a feel and appreciation of the warmth and splendour of our fleshly existence, something which puritanical Christianity always has problems with. And it's going to take the whole of the film for that 
to be sort of fully played out and fully realised because we've got, you know, we, we've got flashbacks, haven't we, to a time when those two sisters were were younger and they both had the opportunity to choose a different path, to sort of break free from the world of, of the village and the, this sect and their father and contemplate a completely different life. Yes, they do. And I think the great thing about the film is that it's really always complex. It's never simplistic. So I think perhaps, you know, you asked me how I felt when I first saw it. And I think perhaps I went away from my first viewing thinking this is a film which is basically about showing a bunch of uptight, excessively puritanical people who only have their eyes on heaven, the importance of the wonders of this imminent world. And of course, that is part of the theme. But it's actually much more complicated than that. And what you actually see, if you look at it carefully, is that there's a way of living which is too detached from the world. But there's a way of like just living in the moment, which is also deeply and profoundly unsatisfactory, a kind of a shallow hedonism. And this, of course, echoes the philosophy of Kierkegaard, which has always interested me. He thinks, you know, we're, we're drawn in these opposite directions, both of which are kind of unsatisfactory. And somehow salvation, for want of a better word, requires us to somehow combine these these two elements. It's to be in the world and of the world without being a slave to the world and a slave to the body. And without giving too much away from the film, I think if you watch it carefully, you can see that that's what Babette's feast actually symbolises. It's not a shallow hedonism at all. It's actually a very profound engagement with all the goodness that the world has to offer. And is also actually an act of great love. It's an act of giving. Babette herself is barely enjoying the meal, of course. She's preparing it for others. And for her, like any artist, she considers herself an artist. It is that ability and capacity and freedom to do your best work which brings the satisfaction. And although the feast itself is the culmination of the film, food is very much present all the way through, isn't it? Right from that that, that opening shot, the camera pulls back and it sort of becomes framed by drying fish and the sisters are delivering soup to the, the, um, the needy in, in the village. And so a lot of the choices or ways of living are sort of made manifest by people's attitudes to food and what they eat, aren't they? Yeah, yeah that's right. Because, of course, the thing about the feast is coming at the culmination of the film is, in a way, that can be misleading. If you remember what becomes what comes last, you forget the fact that actually Babette's impact on people has been much, much more quotidian. What she shows is that you don't need fancy great ingredients to eat well day by day. She chooses things carefully. She forages for herbs and other sort of wild plants. And so actually reducing the expenditure of the household, she enables people to eat better. And I think that's really important and interesting as well. It has echoes with certain things you find in East Asian traditions Dogen, the Zen master, he wrote this instruction for the Zen cook, and he has this line, which I'm paraphrasing slightly. The Zen cook has to recognise that treated correctly, even the most humble green can become a kind of great temple. 
<laughs> what he means is that treated the right way, simple ingredients also provide delight. Whereas for the puritanical community, food is nothing other than sustenance. And therefore it's a joyless thing. The, the poor are very grateful. The two sisters provide meals for the poor, but they're very, very basic and unappetizing. They're grateful, but when Babette takes over the cooking, they're more than grateful. They're actually delighted. And, and seeing that joy come into their lives through something so simple, I think, is, is, is marvellous. And as you suggest, she does it subtly, doesn't she? She doesn't come in and say, I was a famous chef in Paris and I'm going to transform the way you eat and I'm going to you know, revolutionise your lives. Everything she does is really quite subtle and understated and, and undeclared, isn't it? I mean, she, she is this artist who has been celebrated and yet throughout most of the film, she makes nothing of that. She conceals it, in fact, doesn't she? Yes, that's right. I mean, it's not something I talk about perhaps a lot in the book, but I think I think it's perhaps because, you know, for her, she's in this situation. I mean, she survived the terror in France, so obviously she's extremely grateful that she's still alive. And she, she does accept her situation. And I think that is a significant point, because I think the problem with the kind of shallow hedonism is that the shallow hedonist is always unsatisfied, they're only as happy as their last pleasure. And so, you know, if you take them away from the source of their pleasure, they become miserable. And this is why philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, actually pretty much all the great Western philosophers, were down on pleasure. They felt that it made you too dependent upon things which you, you cannot control. Now, Babette isn't like that. Why is that? Well, it's because she hasn't got this kind of grasping and sort of needy relationship to pleasure. She rather has that kind of aesthetic sensibility which recognises the possibilities for pleasure in whatever the world has to offer. And so she adjusts to her new situation admirably well. And she doesn't boast. And in some ways you could say because in a way there is a kind of selfishness there it is interesting that there's not much difference between Isaac Danielson's uh, short story, which is the basis of the um, film, and the film itself. But one difference is in the short story, the character of Babette comes across as perhaps a bit more selfish, actually. And I think she says explicitly, you know, that I didn't do this feast for you. I did it so that I could practice my art, essentially. She says a similar thing in a film, but it's more blunt in the novel. Gillian, what do you make of the content of the meal itself? Is that is that philosophically interesting? Because I was thinking, although it's you could describe it as lavish, it's it's complex, it's subtle, it isn't sort of heavy, it isn't it doesn't conform to so you know it's not roast meat, it's not overwhelming. You know, you've got the turtle soup, which is kind of like extracting the essence of this of this sea creature. You've got the the quails, which are served in in sarcophaguses, is the, is the way it's described, which sort of reconstructs the body of the animal. Do you think there's some philosophical interest in what she actually cooks? It's not a matter of indifference, is it? It's not simply complex and showy. No, I think that I think that's true. I mean, obviously, she's using the choicest ingredients, and she's using very expensive ingredients. I think the the role of death in the meal, I think, is important. You know, you see the living animals, and you see the slaughtered animals, 
So you've got the quails in their, I, I can't even say their tombs, essentially. And, you know, the little skulls are kind of sticking out. And there is that kind of, you know, memento mori tradition of still life painting in which you see the dead and decaying animals and fruit. And I, I think that is significant because this whole point about engaging with what the world has to offer, not in a grasping way, but in an appreciative way, is a coming to terms with the passage of time and mortality. You have to kind of accept the inevitability of death. And I think that, you know, when you do eat animal flesh in the right kind of spirit, you are very aware of that. And so there is this sort of bittersweet nature to all such experiences, which is that enjoyable and wonderful though they are, you're always aware of their passing and that one day you won't be able to experience this kind of thing at all. In terms of the sort of heaviness and the pacing, I think, again, it shows that kind of a, a shallow hedonism is all about throwing yourself into things and stuffing yourself. But actually, the most skilled appreciators of life in this film are always much, much more measured. They sip, they savour, they take their time, and they don't eat too much. This is a challenge for me, I have to say. I am a the Italians called it a buona forchetta, which means someone, a greedy pig, I think, is the less polite version of that. And, uh, you know, for, for me, actually, it's always a little bit of a challenge to try and sort of, you know, pull back from my instinctive desire just to sort of like shove things down my throat and really try and savour them. Maybe that's relevant in the context of the film, too, because you see the members of this sect round the table kind of struggling with their reactions to this meal because they've they have what they you know they've learned they've been indoctrinated to think about sensory pleasure and then that's that's obviously there's obviously an internal a literal internal struggle going on as they taste these amazing things they've never tasted before and it's probably worth emphasizing that the film is also often very wryly funny. So you see you see reactions, you see the struggle on people's faces. So it's not maybe made explicit or verbalised, but there's, there's a lot of things going on which you're left to pick up on. And that's, that's well, for me at least, that was quite a lot of the pleasure of, of the film, seeing those sort of things happening um, wordlessly. Yes, I think that's right. So much, actually. Uh, the film is so much about the reactions of people. You see it in their eyes and their expressions. And, and yes, they they do struggle, and 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 they generally by the end succumb. And you can, you can see it's interesting that not being used to this, they do end up eating much more greedily than the general who is is someone who really appreciates good food and has appreciated it. And I think that's sort of what's often misunderstood about people who who really appreciate their food. It's often said that if you really do appreciate your food, you you don't eat more, <laughs> and you don't eat more quickly, and you don't eat greedily. If anything, you're probably likely to eat less because you're really appreciating it. And it's when you're eating food mindlessly, perhaps for fuel, that you end up just shoveling more and more in. mentioned this in the book what do you make of the fact that the current pope chose this film as his favorite film in 2010 before he was pope but by the time when he was asked again when he had become pope he had he switched to um la strada so what, what was it about it that well maybe what is it about it that you think 
appeals to people of faith, but why did the Pope have to renounce it? Yes, yeah, interesting. Apparently, Rowan Williams, who is the uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, also listed it as one of his favourite films. I think I think that for certain people of faith, and, and not all, it may seem odd as a choice of film because, in a way, the, the more overtly religious characters are not the most sympathetic. But I think that if you want to kind of emphasise the fact that your religion is a religion which doesn't deny the world and is trying to bring fullness in this life, I think what you see in that film is there's there's a very strong religious sensibility. And again, this is difficult to, to, to get across. In summary, it might seem to be an anti-religious film, but I really don't think it is. I think it's about trying to kind of reframe religiosity in the right way and it's about having a kind of a, a, a reverence for life and a reverence for all things which again is, is not about having excessive attachment to life and in that sense it's kind of spiritual but it is firmly grounded in in the here and now and I think you know, this theme this this is a difficult thing to get over in five minutes which is why I kind of needed to write the book to to talk about it is is what really interests me because I've for a long time been an atheist but I've often felt that I have a kind of a religious sensibility in some way and a lot of people report similar things so you know what does it mean to have a kind of religious temperament or a religious outlook without any kind of supernatural belief or belief in anything more to come and I think that's what the film is really, it's about many things, but I think that's the thing it's its about at its heart and the thing which it brings to life, perhaps more vividly than anything else. So you would say, you know, to an atheist who watches a film and sees it simply as, you know, quite a warm-hearted um, demonstration that rather straight-laced, narrow-minded, self-denying religious people can have their eyes opened by sensual pleasure, you'd say that they're actually missing something. And that for a confirmed atheist, there, there are actually quite serious things to think about and take from the film. Oh, absolutely. And there's a very interesting... I mean, you know, you know right right at the end, uh, the general saying goodbye to one of the the sisters. And of course, this is the great love affair that they never had. And you know, he talks about how he's never forgotten her. He says something rather peculiar, which is that they won't be together in the future, you know, in, in body, but they'll be together in spirit. Every time he sits down to eat, he will be with her in spirit. And he says that the body doesn't matter at all. And this would seem to be in stark contradiction to what, to what we've just seen, which is, of course, people enjoying pleasures which entirely depend upon the body. And I think making sense of that is, is is a little bit tricky in some ways. But I think it does suggest, again, that there's a kind of paradox here. In order to fully get the most out of our embodied life and our embodied existence and the things of the world, you do have to, in some ways, develop a certain detachment from them. It's that ability to enjoy without attachment as it were which is at, at its heart and also to recognize it's not because it's of the body that it's good the body just happens to be the the vehicle through which we experience the world and therefore we don't deny it 
but not because we think it's of huge cosmic importance that our our bodies are alive and and continue to live in the future ultimately the 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 connection we get with other people in particular and of course food is this great bringer of conviviality that in a sense transcends the purely physical the guests at the feast are served these quails that we've talked about and the quail heads are part of the presentation and they are invited to suck the brains out of the the quails now i guess having, as it were, sucked all this sort of philosophical um, sustenance out of the film, you could sort of think, well, you know, you can set it aside, but will you be going back to the film periodically? And if so, what will it be that that will be taking you back? Will it be something different from what, what we've been describing as a sort of philosophical meat? Yes, it's interesting. I mean, I am the kind of person who moves on from project to project and in that sense, I'm very happy to kind of work through something and move on. It always leaves you different, it leaves you changed, but it doesn't mean you always have to go back to it again and again. But I'm sure I will watch this film again. Yeah, apart from being very philosophically interesting, I think it's just a wonderful piece of filmmaking. The performances are lovely, the direction is, is, is wonderful, and as we've talked about, I mean, just the way it says so much through just people's small facial reactions. But I think, yeah, if I'll go back to it, primarily, I think, because it's such a, a wonderfully humane film, I think it really fills you with in a sense, you know, sympathy and love for humanity, which if that sounds, might sound a bit highfalutin, but I think it it really does. But in a way that's not ultimately sentimental, you know, no one, there's no happily ever after at the end of the film, any such redemption as people have. It's not like, well, that's it. They're going to be fine now. But it's that deep humanity recognising that even in a harsh environment, there's that possibility for something really magical and wonderful to happen. And that in itself is what justifies this sometimes difficult and bizarre thing called life. I was talking to Gillian Bergini about Babette's Feast. His book, also entitled Babette's Feast, is published in the BFI Film Classic series and is available now in paperback and as an e-book. The film itself is available both on DVD and on streaming services. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others available at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can also subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 